Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of July, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And we'd also like to uh, welcome a special guest here in the studio with us. Um, well, we'll get straight on. Um, yesterday, uh, was it yesterday? <laughs> I'm losing Couldn't track of last time. year, Mike, yes. actually. Anyway, Boris uh, gave his uh, live stream presentation of the latest uh, situation with respect to lockdown. At the same time, Sajid Javid was in the Commons uh, giving his briefing to members of Parliament, and this was uh, their effort to try to uh, deal with the criticism that the Speaker had given them that the Parliament wasn't being briefed and they were giving briefings to the press uh, before they were giving briefings to Parliament. So instead of giving briefings to the press before they were giving briefings to Parliament, they decided to give them both at the same time. Um, so that's all good stuff. Um, so let's just briefly, I'm sorry to do this to everybody, let's briefly have a, a listen to what uh, Boris had to say. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. Today, I want to set out what our lives would be like from the 19th of this month, which is only a few days away, if and when we move to step four, a decision uh, we will finally take on the 12th. And I want to stress from the outset, the pandemic is far from over. It certainly won't be over by the 19th. As we predicted in the roadmap in February, we're seeing cases rise fairly rapidly. There could be 50,000 cases detected per day by the 19th, and we must reconcile ourselves, sadly, to more deaths from COVID. In these circumstances, we must take a careful and a balanced decision. And there's only one reason why we can contemplate going ahead to step four in circumstances where we'd normally be locking down further, and that's because of the continuing effectiveness of the vaccine rollout. Okay, so the continuing effectiveness of the vaccine rollout is the narrative. Just to say there, by the way, the glitches in that uh, recording were uh, on their side, uh, not ours. But anyway, uh, let's just remind ourselves what the uh, UK COVID-19 deaths graph that the government publishes looks like. Um, and uh, Boris then is claiming that uh, this drop in deaths on the right-hand side here is due to vaccines. Um, but what hasn't been explained yet is if that's due to vaccines in 2021, uh, why a similar drop in deaths in 2020? What caused that? We don't know. Um, so that's what we're looking at. But we've got to also remember that actually back in November time, just before the rollout of the vaccines themselves, uh, the curve was down again and it did a 180 degree turn, it looks like. So what caused that? We don't know what caused that yet. Um, so the question is, can it be said that uh, the fall in deaths uh, is as a result of the vaccines? Well, it can't, Mike, because there is no definitive analysis on what's taking place because there is nothing coming out of the MHRA. There's nothing coming out of Public Health England or the government to actually back up in scientific analytical terms the claims that they're making. Uh, indeed. So um, again, I'm sorry to do this to you, but uh, there are a couple of other points that Boris made that are important to listen to. So just uh, have a listen to this. And Chris and Patrick will show the data highlighting the greatly reduced mortality that the vaccines have achieved. So as we come to the fourth step, we have to balance the risks. The risks of the 
disease, which the vaccines have reduced, but very far from eliminated, and the risks of continuing with legally enforced restrictions that inevitably take their toll on people's lives and livelihoods, on, on people's health and mental health. And we must be honest with ourselves that if we can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, when we will be helped by the arrival of summer and by the, the school holidays, then we must ask ourselves, when will we be able to return to normal? And to those who say we should delay again, the alternative to that is to open up in winter, uh, when the virus will have an advantage, or not at all this year. And so, again, without preempting the decision on the 12th of July, let me set out today our five-point plan for living with COVID in the hope that it will give families and businesses time to prepare. First, we will reinforce our vaccine wall, reducing the dose interval for under 40s from 12, uh, for under 40s from 12 weeks to eight, so that everyone over 18 should be double jabbed by the middle of September, in addition to our autumn programme of booster vaccines for the most vulnerable. Second, we will change the basic tools that we have used to control human behaviour, we'll move away from legal restrictions and allow people to make their own informed decisions about how to manage the virus. So what did you make of that? Uh, well, I was having trouble with that one, Mike, because if you listen to what this man's saying, what he is saying is, I've got to use the word, is so dangerous um, because he is mixing up truth with fiction. Uh, he's, he's seeding the fact that we are not going back to normal. Um, he's, he's making claims about the vaccine um, uh, reducing risks for which there is no evidence that's been put out there. And uh, essentially, they've no intention of, of bringing us back into normal. They're going to continue to push the vaccines without the evidence for the safety. And um, this, is, this is a dictatorship which has installed itself. And now it's saying you're not going to live in a democratic society. You're going to live in a new society where we will tell you uh, what goes in and out of your body and whether you can leave your house. Um, well, just I just want to, uh, he began by saying that uh, uh, Chris, the Chuckle brothers uh, were going to highlight the data. And uh, what was interesting about that in the subsequent sections of the live stream was that if we put this back on screen, um, the, the, the COVID-19 dashboard shows data going back until April or January last year. Um, and... Uh, but the data that they're showing now is only from September. Now, why is that interesting? Well, because the question is about the, the, the fall off in the, in the numbers of deaths. They don't want to seem to present that information more recently. Or it could be that they're arguing that uh, uh, actually it's only relevant from the 1st of, December, of, of September because that covers the period of the vaccination, perhaps. But uh, the point is that they still maintain the running total of deaths from back in uh, in February last year. So there seems to be a, a difference in the way information is, is being presented. And that, of course, is part of the problem that we have here in actually trying to get uh, to the bottom of, of what's going on, because uh, the various data that is available um, is there's no way to correlate it. It's very, very difficult to correlate, or there's just simply no way to correlate it. So, uh, so anyway, I just want to remind everybody that if you want to 
get a view of what's going on with vaccine efficacy and safety claims, uh, have a look at this article on the UK Column website. It was published on Monday evening. Uh, why we must question vaccine eff efficacy and safety claims. Ian Davis has uh, hit the nail on the head once again with that. Uh, but we've got to also remember that uh, the claim from the UK government is that 27,000 people's lives have been saved through the vaccination programme. And again, I want to just reiterate this uh, graph from, or this set of graphs from the Office for National Statistics, because the latest uh, data came out uh, already. So um, I want to highlight the section that's labelled home. So this is excess mortality. Uh, this is any time the, the, the horizontal line, the zero line is the five-year average. And so any time one of the blue bars appears above the five-year average, then that is excess deaths. Uh, and you can see that in hospitals and care homes, uh, there has been uh, a reduction in, in deaths. In other words, it's below the five-year average in the summer last year and in this current summer as well for both hospitals and care homes. But for people dying in their own homes, that has never changed. So let's just zoom in on that a little bit. And I particularly want to highlight the period since the vaccination program began. And if you count out, count up those excess deaths from the period that the vaccination began in the, at the beginning of December, you come up with a figure which is roughly the same. It's roughly 27,000 deaths. So 27,000 excess deaths um, of people dying in their homes and the Office for National Statistics tells us that these are not COVID deaths. Um, that is the price of 27,000 claimed lives saved by the government uh, for the rollout of the vaccine program and the reorientation of the National Health Service to facilitate that. And that doesn't seem to add up to me. Well, the government's lying, Mike. We, we can remember back to weapons of mass destruction where the government was prepared to lie in order to create wars overseas? Will the government lie to the public in order to get its promoted uh, vaccine program through? Yes, it will. So let's have a look at what uh, Sajid Javid was saying in the House of Commons then at the same time. So he was confirming to the House that they had completed their review of certification. This is vaccine passports here. Uh, and he said, uh, while already a feature of international travel, we have concluded that we do not think using certification as a condition of entry is a way to go. Of course, businesses can use COVID status certification at their own discretion. And from step four onwards, the NHS COVID pass will be accessible through the NHS app and other digital routes. Uh, this will be the main way that people can provide their COVID status, a status that they will achieve. Once they've completed a full vaccine course, a recent negative test or some other proof of natural immunity. So this is quite important because uh, what uh, this was a feature of Boris's presentation as well. They are removing the legal constraints, the legal requirement to wear face masks and, and do other things, but they're basically leaving the door wide open for uh, companies and uh, corporations to make their own decisions about uh, what their corporate policy is. And so whether you're allowed to go to work without a face mask or you're allowed to uh, join the tube, uh, the, the London Underground without a face mask, that's going to be down to the, the relevant uh, uh, corporate entities to make a decision. It won't be backed up by law at this point. And what's going on there, Brian? Uh, is, this, is this simply uh, slopey shoulder syndrome? Don't, don't hassle us about this. We're not going to be accountable for these, po these policy decisions. Mm. We're going to leave it to the companies. Uh, or is it softening people up to more sort of corporate rule? 
I think it's deeper than that, Mike. What they're doing is introducing an air of confusion over what's law and what is guidance, what's a recommendation. They're then saying, oh, well, if you're a pub or a restaurant, you make the decision over what you're going to require of people in order to come in and have a drink or to eat. Uh, this means that across the country, you've now got a variety of different organisations are going to be interpreting the law, interpreting the guidance in different ways. This is going to produce uh, chaos. It's going to produce unfairness. This is going to stress and confuse the public. And that is going to put the public in a mental condition that means they're going to be even more susceptible to the behavioural control, which Boris is happy to now talk about. We're not using applied psychology for behavioural change, which is what the government said it was going to do in its 2010 Mindspace document. We're now admitting that the British government is unleashing applied psychology on the public in order to control them. And if that is your policy as the government, you want a stressed, confused, depressed uh, population. That's what they're doing. And this is, this is what psychologists and some psychiatrists are now telling the UK column that our analysis of this pernicious attack by the British government on its own population is real. It's true. Um, so on the BBC this morning on the uh, Radio for Today programme, people were a bit confused about whether uh, if you've been double jabbed, um, you'll still be required to self-isolate in the event that you're pinged by the NHS track and trace. And the, uh, the system seemed to be very unclear, uh, both with Boris and with Sajid Javid. Sajid Javid said ministers will provide further statements this week on self-isolation for fully vaccinated people, including international travel, and on restrictions in education settings, including the removal of bubbles and contact isolation in schools. So he was giving that uh, a briefing to the uh, parliament at about 5 p.m. But at 4 p.m., the government published a press release which said that from the 16th of August, so not quite the same date as uh, as the release of, of lockdown, if it happens, of course, um, from the 16th of August, they said double jabbed individuals and under 18s will no longer need to self-isolate if they're identified as a close contact of someone with COVID-19. So again, as you just said, this confused messaging uh, nobody knows. And this is exactly what's been happening right since the very beginning. We... This is the tactic, Mike. Confusion is good for the government because if you can confuse the population, they can't react to these political agendas coming through. And of course, the uh, behavioural insights team fully integrated with the scientific COVID scientific team SAGE has been boasting of their success in using this applied psychology for political purposes. So no secrets about this. Um, Javid went on to say, taken together, step four is the biggest step of all, a restoration of so many of the freedoms that make this country great. Uh, we know that as a consequence, cases will rise just as they've done at every step on our roadmap. But this time our wall of protection will help us. So hopefully that makes you feel a lot better. Well, he's seeding the fact they know there's going to be deaths because there's going to be deaths as a result of the vaccination and the lockdown, uh, particularly amongst the elderly people. So he's preparing people for that. And then he's conflating it with the fact that we have a wall of protection, which we don't need in any case. Um, so I'm going to suggest that what we're likely to see is that uh, they may well release, what date did they say they were going to uh, make the final announcement on the 12th uh, as to whether we were going to be uh, released on the 19th? 
Um, so they've made this announcement yesterday. Uh, it's not really an announcement, it's kind of pre-announcement. Yeah. And then on the 12th, they're going to make the final announcement about whether they're going ahead with this step four thing or not. Uh, and then on the 19th, step four is supposedly implemented if they decide to do that. But what's going to happen at that point? I think probably what we're working up towards is with the rise in cases that's going on at the moment of this so-called Delta variant. Uh, and of course, these case numbers based on PCR uh, testing. Uh, we've said plenty about that over the last uh, 12 months. Um, as this rise of cases increases, um, we're going to see the narrative change to become a rise in hospitalizations with COVID-19. And then I think later in the year, we're going to see them standing up and say, uh, okay, we made a mistake. We'll hold our hands up and say, but we've got to uh, implement a new lockdown. A new lockdown, and it'll be our fault because we didn't follow all the rules that they set. Yes. So let's talk reality, and uh, let's jump back to uh, the beginning of this year when UK Column put out uh, a really uh, heart-wrenching um, testimony of a lady called Nicola who did an interview with us uh, talking about what had happened to a perfectly fit husband who had the uh, Oxford vaccine and soon after he was very ill and uh, she told uh, the story of the fact that he gradually lost control of his legs until he couldn't walk and then he was taken into hospital where he was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a ne neurological disorder. So this was the, um, um, this was the UK column uh, web post for that uh, interview but of course what happened uh, was it hadn't been up for long before this was actually banned by YouTube. Uh, what did YouTube say to the column? Well, it said that basically it had removed this accurate personal testimony uh, because it was ineligible. Uh, and uh, this was the, the result of the fact that it was medical misinformation, apparently. So that's what happened to the UK column. Uh, well, what a surprise that the same story is now breaking into uh, we'll say wider press. So here's Stoke-on-Trent Live. Uh, this is um, the 6th of July. Stoke-on-Trent families despair as dad paralyzed by coronavirus vaccine. Um, and the family is seeking answers from the government. This is the uh, Daily Mail. Father demands answers as, sorry, family demand answers as father fights for life after COVID jab. Uh, so uh, the UK column's not allowed to report this without being censored by YouTube, but essentially what we reported as a very important story is now finally being picked up by the likes of the Daily Mail. How many months? Uh, well, what have four we... Four months? Yeah, four months. Yes. Uh, so let's have a look. We were able to speak to Nicola herself this morning. Now, some of this quote is from, from our conversation with her, or the, the quote's coming up, some of that has come from our conversation and some is actually printed in the article. But essentially, she says that her husband, Tony, is paralyzed from the neck down with Guillain-Barre syndrome. He's still on the ventilator and he's been suffering from hallucinations and infections. Uh, she says that she's providing twice daily personal care to Tony. I get to visit, but there are still restrictions for the family. It's a nightmare. Uh, when they were planning this vaccination program, why didn't they, as the government, put any severe side effects to look out for when they knew what was coming? They knew there would be a small minority. Now, this is a very interesting point, Mike, isn't it? Because we've been pushing and pushing the fact that uh, the uh, NHS, Public Health England, 
has not been fully informing the public of the risks. And here is this lady in this terrible position now highlighting the fact that they were completely unaware of these risks before having the uh, vaccine. The government has shown no support. It's callous and barbaric. He's got the slimmest chances of recovery. He will surely end up with disabilities. The government can bury their heads in the sand, but they are wrecking the chances of the vaccine in the future. My daughters won't forget this. His grandchildren won't forget that their granddad was not supported. And then she says trying to cover it up makes it look even more sinister. And of course, we've had many reports now from families who say that they reported vaccine adverse reactions via the MHRA's yellow card system. What happens? Utter silence. Nothing happens. Now, in this article, uh, our old favourite, Dr. Ju Rain, is quoted. She said over 72 million doses of vaccines against COVID-19 have now been administered in the UK, saving thousands of lives through the biggest vaccination programme that has ever taken place in this country. Uh, we had to comment on that. So we're going to put the reality in because the MHRA has provided no peer-reviewed or any other published evidence to support vaccine-saving lives claims. We're no, not... she's repeating that on the basis of models, computer models. Yes. So there's no actual data to support that statement other than computer modelling. And we know how successful the computer modelling has been from the beginning of this exercise. Completely unsuccessful. She went on to say no effective medicinal vaccine is without risk. Our advice remains that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks in the majority of people, to which the UK column uh, says what she's really saying is that the MHRA has made sure that uh, they've not provided any peer-reviewed or other published evidence to inform the public of the true vaccine risks so that individuals can make an informed choice. And of course, making an informed choice for medication or a vaccine is there in, in the baseline rules for the NHS, but of course the MHRA can ignore that. Um, we ask anyone who suspects that they experienced a side effect linked with their COVID-19 vaccine to report it to the coronavirus yellow card website. Well, this is a truly disgusting statement because the reality is that once you've reported your vaccine adverse reaction to MHRA yellow card system, they do nothing uh, to investigate, but they do continue to work to promote the, the business plan, which you talked about on Monday, Mike, to promote the pharmaceutical and the vaccine industry. So if anybody thinks MHRA is there to protect the public, that is incorrect. Under their business plan, they are there to help promote the pharma, uh, pharmaceutical and vaccine industry. But there's more to this story because uh, this doctor was quoted, Dr. Christopher Allen. He said, we cannot be certain the jab caused the neurological illness. He's talking about Tony, um, Nicola's husband, and it could have happened by chance but it demonstrates the need for robust post-vaccination surveillance. He went on to say, vaccines currently deployed are very safe, but no investigation into the safety has been carried out, Mike, and published. So how can this man make this statement? He can't, and he certainly can't with any honesty, when, if, uh, because the clinical trials are still ongoing. Clinical trials still ongoing, MHRA not investigating, the reports of ad vaccine adverse effects, 
and also admitting that barely 10% of the serious ones get reported. But uh, we're going to thank the Daily Mail because in their article, they put up the key statement. British health chiefs have yet to offer a public breakdown of how many cases of the Guillain-Barré syndrome have been spotted in vaccine recipients across the entire country. Now, some of them are reported under the yellow card system, but since the MHRA says that the yellow card system is woefully inadequate and barely 10% of the serious reports are logged, um, what the mail says here is absolutely true. So we'll end with this statement from Nicola. She says there's up to 40 families involved who've had cases of GBS, hemorrhage and blood disorders. Um, she's also backing a petition to reform the Vaccine Damage Payment Act 1979, which is calling for more support for those harmed as a result of receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. And the significance of this is these families who've now lost breadwinners, so if the, uh, particularly the husbands, but in some cases uh, it's, it's uh, a wife involved, uh, if the breadwinner is now in hospital, the families are totally without financial means to look after themselves, the government not interested. Um, so let's welcome Alex to the programme. Uh, welcome to the programme, Alex. Uh, we're going to move to Holland and uh, GPs. Um, GPs liable for the jab? In a striking departure, Mike, from the British media scene, the Dutch media, both the alternative and the mainstream, are starting to pick up on this issue. And as in some other continental countries, notably Germany, it's becoming semi-public knowledge, uh, a talking point, that the general practitioner or family doctor under whose ID number uh, the uh, batch uh, of the jab was administered uh, is a liable at law in many cases for the effects. And this has been covered very well by the Dutch alternative uh, high production values channel, Black Box. I should use the word new media or free media in preference. They go by this continental acronym on YouTube, BLCKBX. They also have their own website, blackbox.tv, where they subtitle in English a lot of their productions uh, using Rumble, but they're also on YouTube for the time being. Uh, what's striking about Black Box here is that um, if you go back to that slide, we'll uh, uh, look at what's, ha what's happening here. Um, this is a follow-up to a piece which, like this one, got two to 300,000 views within a few days in a population of 17 million. Uh, so this is something that about 2 or 3% of the Dutch population, even on YouTube's massaged official figures, has seen this on YouTube alone. Uh, the title of this piece translates as Doctors Ought to be Expecting uh, prosecution. And this is the, these are the words of a trial lawyer and, uh, in fact, a lecturer in liability at law, Simon von Zeil, who has taken up the case of a 28-year-old lady uh, local to him in, in Brabant, a lady called Lisetta Verhoeven, who in the prequel to this was interviewed in tears because she had gone from being an archaeology student and a part-time care home worker to not far short of paralysed and has described her symptoms in detail with such effect because of the sheer numbers involved uh, that the health minister, the extremely questionable Hugo de Jonge, previously the minister who brought in uh, the Scottish-style named person policy, state guardianship to the Netherlands at council level, de Jonge has had to promise to go and visit the lady. There, there is there's very little cover these uh, at this point for Dutch ministers to hide behind, even the usual uh, plea that we're only following the advice of the scientific advisory 
group, which in the Netherlands is one called the RIVM. Uh, so that is quite something because in that program, Simon von Zeil says of his new client, Lisetta Verhoeven, she has a solid case because informed consent in her case was not informed and therefore is not valid at law. Uh, this has also been followed up in a different way by uh, a newspaper, quite a large regional one for the Dutch East Midlands, De Stentor. We covered some pieces that they have uh, reported on recently with uh, uh, some very nasty uh, cameramen uh, going into the town of Urk and uh, shoving cameras in front of people as they went into church and bullying them. The Stentor again here has shown itself to have some metal. It's very much mainline and a major uh, local paper. Here it's reporting that a family doctor or GP from Lelystad, uh, a city which uh, built is built from land which was at the bottom of the sea until about 50 years ago. Uh, this um, doctor, Dr. Ramdas, got hold uh, or, or became aware that that agency I just mentioned, the RIVM and other health agencies, were writing behind his back to the parents uh, of young people uh, on his uh, practice list and the uh, encouraging them to get jabbed. Uh, so his practice, Kempenar Healthcare Centre, uh, is uh, featured in this article because uh, on a letter paper headed by that practice, uh, Dr. Ramdas warns the parents and guardians, if you tap that again, we'll zoom in on it, uh, of what's going on. And a summary of what he's writing here in Dutch is, Dear parent or guardian, your child has been given a direct invitation by uh, this RIVM, something equivalent to the NHS's NICE, uh, or it's, it's hard to summarise exactly what it is, but it's, it's the one-stop shop in the Dutch government for scientific and medical advice orders you to do this. Uh, going behind the back of the government and uh, and parents in this case, your child has been uh, in invited directly, not the parents, the child, um, by making a selection, uh, a data grab from my uh, patient register. And Dr. Ramdas says, I am not in agreement with this. It was done behind my back. Uh, the invitation is misleading. It's not a vaccination, it's mRNA treatment. He calls it a serum for which he's been picked up by one comment under the article. Um, but he goes on to say, this is still an experimental treatment with only temporary approval no license. If your child participates uh, or takes this jab, he or she will be part of a major or, or huge, in fact, wrote, medical experiment. For any questions, please speak to me, says Dr. Ramdas. I cannot imagine that going into a major regional paper in Britain. Can you, Michael or Brian? Well, absolutely not, is the answer. No, not at this stage. Um, okay, well, let's move on then. Now, on Monday, uh, good morning, Britain. Um, had the wonderful Susan Mickey on, who's from the SAGE uh, Behavioural, uh, well, the SPY B, I believe, the behavioural uh, section of SAGE. Um, and, uh, well, she was asked a question that she didn't particularly enjoy. So let's uh, have a look at that. So there's a point I really have to put to you, and, and you'll be aware of this, because there's been a lot of, um, of commentary about this in the British media about you. Um, and it, it's to do with your politics. And, and you know I'm going to ask you. Uh, you've been a member of the Communist Party for about 40 years now. You're, you're still a member. And we know that, that communism is basically statist. We look at communist countries around the world, and we see that they are tremendously top-down dominant and control societies that they, that they rule over. And I just wonder, and I'm putting this question on behalf of those who wonder about your politics, Politics. If your politics actually informs your sense of control, it's not just it's not just the medical arguments, but you have a kind of a political bent to want the state to tell people what to do. I've come on your program as a scientist, as do all people who come onto your program as scientists. They come on to talk about the evidence, relevant theories, 
how we approach our scientific disciplines. And you don't ask other scientists about politics. So I'm very happy to speak about science, which is what my job is, um, and to limit it to that. So you're, you're saying that your politics doesn't inform your opinion on this subject? I'm saying that I agreed to come on this programme as a scientist, and I'm very happy to talk to you about the issues that you're raising mm -hmm. as a scientist, well, as which a si is the same for other scientists that you invite onto the programme. That's a perfectly fair answer. Thank you. Uh, Alex, uh, was Richard Medley a, uh, correct to answer that, ask that question? Sorry. Of course he was, because <laughs> communism is a totalitarian doctrine. It's not just another political persuasion like liberalism, socialism or conservatism, not that any of those in any Western country is worth the name in its mainline political variant now. Uh, communism is committed to revolution. Read the founders' documents. Um, is it irrelevant that a whole bunch of Nazis shipped out under Operation Paperclip uh, became top scientists in the post-war generation in the United States. Well, it was treated as irrelevant for a long time, although McCarthyism was, of course, vigorously pursuing for a while the communists, the Native American, the, 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 the American-born um, politicians and scientists who were communists at the time. Nobody was looking into the absolute hush-hush matter of fascists, actual Nazi card-carrying Nazi party members who had got high up at NASA, DARPA, uh, the US State Department, and you name it. Um, <laughs> there's a fundamental difference here. You know, it, it, it's, it's fairly obvious to anyone who knows any history that communism believes in infiltration and partisanship. Um, just to add a bit to that, and of course, this lady is cl she claiming to be a scientist, but what is her speciality? Behavioural psychology. So we've got minutes of their own meetings saying they're going to ramp up fear and stress in the country in order to get the agenda across. Was she sitting in one of those meetings and pushing for this? Because really, she knows that if they can stress the population enough and make them fearful, this is going to be very easy to introduce some form of revolution. And I think if David Scott was with us today, he'd say, well, actually, the, uh, the coup has already taken place. The democracy's gone and we've got something akin to a dictatorship, even though Boris is still claiming to be a Conservative Party member. What is, what is this woman about and, and where, who, who's really asking the deep questions? UK column, anybody else? I don't think so. Well, uh, also on the discussion was Dominic Samuels and uh, she was asked for her view of the situation and she said this. Well, I think as you pointed out, I think it's important for your viewers to know that Susan Mickey also suggested that we should wear face masks forever. Um, and she said that verbatim. So that's where Susan is coming from with that. Um, Dominique, sorry, you've you've stated something as fact that the person that you've stated it about uh, denies. It, it, in fact, there's footage of yeah, Susan I said, I said forever to some extent. What? To some and it's extent. been misreported. That only one word, four words I said, has been reported. And this is, to some extent depends on the situation you're in and how threatening the vi virus and the pandemic is around you. So the question is, was that a fair rebuttal from uh, Ms. Mickey? Uh, because, uh, well, to find that out, we've got to see what she actually said uh, when she said it, because it wasn't so much what came after the forever 
it was what came before the forever, which, which sets the context for this. So just let's just remember, this is from the 10th of June uh, on Channel 5. So just uh, have a listen to this. If I can start with you first, do you think that this, this is going to be right? We've had so much hope on the vaccines, hopefully changing everything, bringing an end to the pandemic, bringing an end to this, these changes we've had in our lives. Do you think it won't be enough? Vaccines are a really important part of the pandemic control, but it's only one part. Test, trace and isolate system, border controls are really essential. And the third thing is people's behaviour. Um, that is the behaviour of social distancing, of when you're indoors, making sure there's good ventilation or if it's not wearing face masks and hand and surface hygiene. We'll need to keep these going in the long term. And that will be good not only for COVID, but also to reduce other... So when you say long term, sorry to interrupt, Professor Mickey. When you say long term, what do you mean by that? How long? Very quickly. Um, I think forever. To some extent, because... <laughs> Why didn't you say that? Oh, I've gone forever. So, okay, she did say to some extent, but in the lead up to that, she was very clear that uh, these measures would have to be kept in place for the long term. In her mind, Alex, I would suggest that she absolutely meant forever. Of course, because she used one adverb and then cancelled it out with an adverbial clause. Uh, which cannot go with that adverb. So she's cancelling out the one when she realises, and her intonation and facial muscles uh, belie it as well, when she's realised that she's dropped a clangor there and, uh, and given herself unlimited scientific dictatorship, she has completely reversed the message so that it means zero. I mean, to adapt Handel's Messiah chorus here, she's preaching, and she shall reign forever to some extent. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It's either forever or it hath an end. Yeah, indeed. So she, she had a concept, an idea clearly in her head, and that was that it was going to continue. That's, that's absolutely it. Uh, I mean, I'm not a body expert, language, body language expert, but anyone with a bit of nous and world experience, uh, in, especially in video, but even just listening to that, will tell where the nervous admissions are, the tells. Uh, no, it, it's not something she was expected to be drawn out on. And she got shirty in the previous clip because Richard Maidley uh, had been presumptuous enough to treat her as an interview subject rather than as the kind of uh, uh, the, the 1950s BBC style. Uh, do you have any comments to make, Minister? Uh, no, she's actually being given some what the Dutch might nicely call tegengas, uh, a bit a bit of uh, gas back, as it were, a bit a bit of... Uh, uh, resistance to, to what she's, she's, she's claiming, and she wasn't up for that. Um, yes. Now, Alex, uh, let's uh, move on to this. This is uh, entitled Holding the Line, Journalists Against COVID Censorship. Uh, we're a group of journalists and media workers from multiple sectors, including press, broadcasts, freelance and PR, who are concerned uh, much of the UK media is turning a blind eye to COVID-19 data and analysis that challenges the government narrative. Uh, that's quite a statement. 
It is, and there's a couple of dozen people involved in Britain now. So uh, we've been lamenting that Britain and Ireland don't have the media freedom of other parts of the Western world, and you'll see the same applies to Parliament in a moment. Uh, but you know, people with an interest in journalism or who are themselves or, or related to or befriended with a mainstream journalist uh, who, who they know is uh, not entirely sold on uh, on the church of Covidia, branch Covidianism may wish to point them towards this forum because it's, getting, uh, it's building ahead of steam now. They haven't yet got a website, but they have got their first statements out and at least a secure, semi-secure contact address. So they have been ber they're berating the British media for what they've done in the last year and a quarter. Uh, not time to read everything, but people can freeze the screen as we just flick through these and see what they are berating um, the UK media for, uh, even targeting dissenting scientists. Let's see what else they have to say. Uh, there's eight bullet points on that slide as to what the British media has often failed to do, particularly fa primary journalistic failures, failure to report. So that's a failure by um, omission and a failure to provide uh, proper context. So that's a failure of, of commission, as it were, deliberately doing something. Uh, alternative treatments, of course, as uh, people are becoming a little more aware of now is a major well, part of what they're well, not that, doing. That, that's really key, isn't it? Because the amount of effort that's been put into the vaccination program, if the same amount of effort had been put into uh, the other prophylactics that are available, for example, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, well, of course, we did run a, a trial on hydroxychloroquine and we massively overdosed the people that were on that trial and many of them died. So, so you know, that, that seemed like, it seemed like uh, an effort to discredit hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic in this case. Uh, we've now got ivermectin as a subject of a similar trial uh, uh, from Public Health England, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, but then they go on to uh, say, our group members from the UK and abroad would like to stress that we appreciate the hard work and diligence of our dedicated colleagues working in these very difficult times, not least through chronic understaffing and being isolated working from home. It, is that overly generous, do you think? I, I think there are quite a few journalists with a crisis of conscience who are filtering out what they are, um, what what is cognitively dissonant to them. And of course, when any, in any profession, you want to woo your undecided colleagues, don't you? So they they could be accused of overgenerousness there. But on the other hand, you know that they they are identifying the primary problems here. That investigative journalist has entirely ceased because, as you just pointed out, follow the money, which was the bottom bullet point of the previous slide of their. Uh, their charge sheet against the mainstream media uh, isn't being done. But even follow the deaths you were hinting at there with the, the hydroclox or hydro, hydro, uh, uh, hydro, hydroxychloroquine. Chlor hydroxychloroquine, I thought. Yeah, we're all subject to this case. Hydroxychloroquine, HCQ. Um, that, as Ian Davis reported for the UK column quite a while ago in a, in a detailed article, is a case of follow the deaths. You know, this is something that is of interest to pathologists in some Western countries, including that black box uh, TV channel from the Netherlands I mentioned is, is picking up on this now, the pronouncements of pathologists. Again, Britain and Ireland seem to be particularly uh, in a dark place there for, uh, for not reporting that. Well, here's a follow-up statement, which again, we won't go through verbatim uh, by the group, which I think uh, is interesting to people and culminates in a contact address. So they say of themselves, we are a collective of legacy media journalists. That's the, the word they use for the mainstream freelancers and alternative media broadcasters who rather than focusing on the failings of the legacy media, that's their previous point, Mike, about being generous or the benefit of the doubt. Uh, instead, they want to focus on encouraging best practice and to raise awareness about tech giant censorship of key aspects of what has been happening. 
So they've got 26 members at present. I think they need 260. So I do hope that anyone involved in journalism watching this uh, who knows a suitable candidate uh, should be right on them. Um, in the coming weeks, they're hoping to establish their own website, much like Doctors for COVID Ethics, uh, the professionals doing it for themselves, and feature our own investigations. They're going to be following the money and the deaths themselves. And they go on to say that the legacy media also needs to look at its apparent gravitation. So they're, they're, they're hedging their, they're not being uh, fierce here, they're, they're, they're allowing the benefit of the doubt again, apparent gravitation towards giving platforms only to those from the medical and scientific world who promote and protect the official narrative. And last but not least, we want to encourage journalists to follow the money and ask who benefits, that's the cui bono question, from what has been happening. And the contact email address on the next slide is, uh, and of course with a great, uh, a serious promise they make here of strictest confidence and anonymity assured, uh, ensured. And uh, uh, I, I think at this stage, we can certainly uh, take them at their word from the, the contacts I've had with them. Uh, is journalists against COVID censorship with no punctuation in it at protonmail.com. Now, of course, Mike, you'll be the first to say no email address is entirely secure. Even Swiss-based ProtonMail, the Swiss have a history of dirty deals being cut with uh, with foreign intelligence agencies to trade on their, their reputation as a neutral and, uh, and, and well-encrypted country. Uh, but it's better than nothing, should we put it that way? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Okay, let's move on then to uh, Canada. Uh, and uh, the MP, Derek Sloan. We're entering a segment here to prove to particularly British and Irish viewers that the rest of the Western world does have members of parliament who speak out about the uh, egregious abuses and strangenesses that we've been covering in the, the, the previous segments. It's just, seem, it's just that in our own islands, it doesn't seem to be uh, reaching that pitch yet. And even in these other Western countries we're featuring, uh, most of, if not all of the members of parliament in question do have to leave their parties, even if they started in a fairly, um, uh, should we say, uh, dissident-minded party to start with, uh, they have had to leave or have been drummed out in recent months by losing the party whip before they made these statements. And if, if you go and look at any of these people uh, on Wikipedia, you will see nasty patriarchal man, uh, lots of uh, nasty things in his past, as if that wasn't true of mainstream politicians, just, just because Wikipedia doesn't say it. you know. Uh, but the first one we have in question, it, it, it queued up here is, I think you've got the wrong clip queued up there, is Derek Sloan, who is an independent, can it, there we are, an independent member of parliament now at um, federal level in Canada. And uh, he, in the, the, the still we showed a moment ago, was pointing out that, uh, and he was reading out other people's words, healthcare workers who've spoken to him. At this stage, it appears that they want to do us harm. And that was not his words, but those of a whistleblower had contacted him. Here in this segment, he uh, summarizes uh, what has been told to him by one of the whistleblowers from the Canadian healthcare system. One of the first whistleblowers to reach out to me was a concerned nurse who has spent over 20 years working in a hospital in my riding of Hastings, Lennox and Addington. For her own protection, I will not name her today. When she reached out to my office, it was to inform me that the local hospital she worked in was experiencing very low numbers of COVID patients. That is, until they took in many patients from Toronto hotspots, which artificially raised the number of COVID patients in our community in a way that was not accurately reflected in the local media reports to the public. It made it look like locally we had a lot more uh, active cases than we truly had. This type of fear-mongering in media reports has been a major issue of concern throughout this pandemic. Even worse, this nurse informed me that many of the sick patients had in fact already been vaccinated. This was not something we were hearing from our local health officials in local media reports. 
Even worse, this honest and diligent nurse was afraid to say anything publicly because the College of Nurses of Ontario was threatening nurses who spoke out with what they were personally witnessing in their hospitals. Anecdotal stories such as this came in with several frontline medical professionals reaching out to me with each passing day. It gets worse. On the whistleblower file, things drastically changed on April 30th, 2021. The College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, known as CPSO, issued a dire statement threatening any doctor who spoke out about what they were witnessing on the front lines of our hospitals, in their own clinics, and in our communities. The purpose of governing bodies like the CPSO is to protect the public, not to stifle legitimate scientific inquiry or dissent by professional doctors. But this attempt to intimidate doctors into silence had the opposite effect. My office was inundated with calls of concern. At the time, we began working very closely with multiple groups of doctors and other concerned medical professionals. These honest and hardworking doctors are fully galvanized against the regressive authoritarian overreach of the CPSO and other similar governing bodies. Um, a couple of people mentioning, Alex, that uh, that was played a little bit faster than normal. Yes, I have a habit of speeding things up a little in order to fit things into the uh, strict requirements of news time. And I always put subtitles in when I can. Uh, but apologies if that was quick for people. I think they caught the key uh, points anyway. And this was covered by CPAC, the uh, the Canadian equivalent of C-SPAN. So uh, uh, it is a private company, if I'm, if I'm correct, unlike the US C-SPAN, but it is the most neutral uh, uh, media coverage that's available, high quality coverage without commentary of what goes on in politics on the Hill in Ottawa, much as C-SPAN does on the Hill in Washington. And so Derek Sloan uh, is you know, pushing things and we had to se select only a few here, but I could otherwise have mentioned uh, that there is Craig Kelly, the former Liberal Member of Parliament, again at federal level in Australia, who has gone on the rampage in the chamber uh, about the cover-up uh, of the, the efficacy and safety of ivermectin as an oral therapy uh, against COVID-19. Uh, and so people can look up Craig Kelly and find something very similar. So even in these countries which are berated as being some of the most medico-fascist in the world now, Australia and Canada, uh, not to my knowledge uh, in New Zealand yet with its smaller population, but that there are some uh, members of parliament who are either jumping or being kicked out of their parties, which is a prerequisite, of course, because you can't represent your constituents when you're a member of a whipped party with a manifesto. Obviously, you can't. But they are, after making that jump or being pushed, they're starting to say it. Now, up to a very taciturn and uh, uh, and stoic nation indeed, Finland. Uh, here we are indebted to an alternative uh, news site, rapsodia.fi. Uh, the URL is at the top of the screen for those who are wanting to find it. Uh, in a moment, we'll be playing a, a clip of this. This is Arno Turtiainen, who, uh, again, if you look at Wikipedia, you will be told he's a very bad man with capital VBM. Uh, but he is no longer aligned with the True Finns party, the, the populist party. Uh, which sprung up in the middle of last decade. Uh, this is the first of four spe speeches he's recently given in Parliament in Helsinki. Uh, and this one uh, is uh, entitled in the English subtitled version, COVID vaccine genocide. Uh, a very dapper chap and a, a, a boxing champion, I understand as well. Uh, so people love to hate him for his, uh, shall we say, his, his, his manly appearances in Parliament. But even though it's, uh, he's going to speak in Finnish in a moment with subtitles, apologies in advance to those listening in audio, I thought it was worth keeping the original fi uh, Finnish audio to uh, demonstrate to people how measured he is uh, about in his delivery, even though the message is extremely dire. So a, a very gentlemanly performance too. So here he is putting his fellow members of parliament in Helsinki on notice that they can't say they were not warned. Olen sanonut täällä useasti, että kyseessä on ihmiskoe. Suomalaisille ei ole kerrottu Nurnbergin säännöstön vastaisesti, että kyseessä on ihmiskoe. 
nyt tällä puheella olen tehnyt teidät kaikki sekä median edustajat tietoiseksi siitä, että kyseessä on ihmiskoe ja että sen tulokset ovat hirveitä. Vertailun vuoksi edellinen keskeytetty pieleen mennyt rokotekokeilu pandemiksi keskeytettiin, kun haittavaikutuksia oli 32 kertaa vähemmän kuin nyt. Kysynkin nyt teiltä kaikilta. Kuinka monen ihmisen tulee kuolla tai vammautua, että saamme keskeytettyä tämän ihmisten tappamisen ja vammauttamisen? Hyvät kollegat ja arvoisat median edustajat, te olette nyt tietoisia kansakuntaamme kohtaavasta äärimmäisen vakavasta turvallisuusuhasta ja siitä, että koronainjektioiden haitat ylittävät hyödyt. Teillä ei ole enää syytä olla toimimatta kansakuntamme pelastamisen eteen. Lopuksi... Jos te johdatte kansalaisia vielä harhaan, kertomalla heille esimerkiksi satuja, että rokotteet ovat turvallisia ja että niillä on myyntilupa, te osallistutte tahallaan useaan rikokseen, josta vakavin saattaa olla kansanmurha. Muistutan vielä kerran kaikkia, siis ihan jokaista. Rikoksesta tulee tahallinen, kun sen tekee tietoisesti. Nyt te kaikki olette tietoisia. Kiitos. I think that's uh, the best of the old-fashioned gentleman in Parliament, isn't it? I'm not saying there's not a role for women in Parliament, don't misunderstand me, but that particular character with his bow tie and his bulging muscles under his suit jacket can go in with deadpan delivery, even when he's being howled down, which happened in the second and third of the speeches he made, uh, and just carry on saying, there you are, you know now, don't you? Um, which is quite something. Uh, if people want to follow all four of these in English, uh, the URL to go to is rapsodia.fi slash category slash anno hyphen turtiainen. The spelling is available uh, if you're watching in video, if you freeze at this point. And Rapsodia has, as you can see there, summarized all four and subtitled them in English. And if you tap again, you will see an extract from the latest of these four speeches that he's made, which you might want to read out, Mike. Uh, no, we'll, we'll move on. People can freeze the screen and read, read that, but we'll move on from that, Alex. So, so where are we off to now? Here we have, uh, familiar to viewers by this point, uh, Thierry Baudet, uh, party leader of the Forum for Democracy, which, by the way, now has a distinct YouTube channel in English called Forum for Democracy International, spelt the English way. You'll find that on YouTube for the time being. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not saying that beside the point, because he is now having to take YouTube to court because they are uh, removing his parliamentary speeches from YouTube at this point. Uh, but here he is in the lobby of the Tweede Kamer, the Dutch lower house, uh, making a pertinent point, which I've summarized in English, and then you'll hear him uh, in Dutch with English subtitles going into a bit more detail. Uh, he's talking here about the, fo the follow-up or the, the fallout from the G7 meeting in Cornwall last month. And he says, so much time is being devoted to things that are outworkings of the great ideological issues. Yet this is what it's really about. The course of the world is being set, and of course, the Netherlands is an example of a leading economy that isn't in the G7 and has no say at all, not even through its prime minister. And he says, I'm being fobbed off after it's all done and dusted with, did you have a point to make, Mr. Baudet? Uh, so here he is, uh, shall we say, uh, appropriately mocking the elbow tap, um, virtue signaling, greeting gestures that were seen at uh, 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 Cornwall at the G7 and uh, making this point about uh, this is an auto translation but it's 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 reasonably good for people to follow in subtitles uh, getting to the heart of what it is that's cooked up at the G7 and similar bodies that never goes through national parliaments. Beelden gezien denk ik van de 
G7, waar ze met die ellebogen eerst elkaar uh, begroeten en daarna gearmd uh, en, en feestelijk biertjes dronken zonder uh, afstand te houden. Hier is het document, 25 pagina's, met wat de G7, dus de grote landen, wat die met elkaar hebben afgesproken, wat er moet gebeuren. Het is ongelooflijk wat hier allemaal in staat over genderneutraliteit, over uh, heel groot uh, hoeveelheden geld die naar Afrika moeten worden overgemaakt, uh, de, de, allerlei plannen voor, voor vaccinatieprogramma's, uh, lockdownprogramma's. Uh, het gaat maar door werkelijk, klimaatneutraal, heel veel politieke uitspraken en, en ik wil heel graag dat de Tweede Kamer daarover debatteert. Wij moeten weten wat de regering daar eigenlijk van vindt. Dit wordt ook allemaal, dit zijpelt door in al die andere internationale overlegorganen, in de EU, in alle andere plekken. Dus wij moeten daarover ja. spreken. Dit is ontzettend groot en belangrijk onderwerp, dus ik wil daar op korte termijn, dus voor de zomer, een debat over. Met de minister-president. Met de minister-president. Ja, ik help u even. And you could hear the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, doing the, the usual uh, posy thing here of saying, uh, uh, you mean with the Prime Minister, don't you? I'm helping you a bit, Mr. Mr. Baudet. You know, the, the subtle dig at him to try to diminish his authority when he's saying, as one of the few opposition parties that are saying it, can we please ask the Prime Minister uh, what exactly is coming out of the G7 that will become government policy? So he's well managing to put his finger on uh, the, the route uh, which is uh, circumscribing national deliberative bodies. It doesn't matter whether you're a member of the EU or the G7 or not. Now Britain is no longer in the EU, the Netherlands never was in G7, but these policies come nevertheless. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, there are options for you to join us there. You'd be very welcome and that would be very much appreciated and needed. Uh, and if you uh, would like to share our material on the various platforms that we're still on, then please do. Okay, well, Alex, you were talking about the policies still coming. We can now get a clue of where these policies come from. So we'll just remind people what we were talking about on Monday. So Mike took us through a sequence where the BBC is saying, well, basically, if you dare to challenge the government over lockdown and vaccinations, you're on the route to becoming a right-wing extremist. And uh, the BBC brought in this lady, Chloe Colliver, um, as an independent uh, expert uh, talking about how people slide down the slippery slope of ideology. You start off being just a nice citizen, but you challenge the government and you'll be going to become a right-wing extremist. Mm. So here she is, Chloe uh, Colliver, Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Now, a big thank you to somebody who emailed in and said, um, I think you need to really, <laughs> you need to have a look at the list of funders for the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, um, who was the expert in support of Mariana Spring, who's supposed to be the mis BBC's misinformation mistress. Um, so let's have a look at uh, what comes up. So here's the organization, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. I hadn't come across it before, uh, but it says it's independent, Mike. So that's the first positive thing, it's independent non-profit organization dedicated safeguarding human rights and reversing the rising tide of polarization, extremism and disinformation worldwide. I get a glowing sense of wellness from that statement. And since uh, 2006, they've been at the forefront of analyzing and responding to extremism. Well, let's have a look at partnerships and funders. And of course, our eagle-eyed viewer spotted straight away that amongst the funders, Top of the list is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, so that was nice. And if we drop down, we can also see Open Society. 
So this is a truly independent organisation. Oh, of course, Mark. but there's I mean there's lots more that you can mention there. British Council, the uh, uh, the Mercator Stiftung, the uh, National Ger Democratic Institute, German Odom Marshall Fund Alliance, Oda Meyer Group. I mean they're all in there. Uh, and Alex, these are uh, uh, it's just a, a, a list of the the top sort of funders of this type of organisation. Uh, especially some of the continental ones there that won't be familiar to our viewers, they do ring bells to me. Uh, they mostly came out of the post-war generation where, shall we say, they, the landed gentry who were embarrassed and they didn't have quite the standing that the lords do in Britain decided the best thing to do was to become professional virtue signalers. You know, the kind of the, the, the guilt of privilege and wealth expressing itself. So uh, Bertelsmann Foundation is a good example of that. Yeah, the, these are not neutral. The, this is blue blood money, basically. Yeah, yeah this, this is, is the very... aristocracy very powerful money. These are the people creating the world's policies, which the BBC as a propaganda machine simply spews out, uh, trying to claim to the public they've got a, an independent commentator. But let's go on through because the list is huge. Encourage people to go and see this for themselves because we can't cover everything. But down the bottom, you've got the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the UK Column Home Office. No, no, not the UK Column Home Office. Absolutely. The UK Home Office, office. Yeah. thank you. And uh, the UN Office of Counterterrorism, slip of the tongue there. Was that a Freudian slip of the tongue? We'll get there eventually. And uh, this one was particularly good because uh, what have we got? Audible, Facebook, um, GIFCT, Google, Google.org, Jigsaw, Microsoft, and YouTube. So all of these organizations, which uh, make out their just ordinary corporate outfits, are actually working in the background to develop policy, which the BBC then injects into that uh, interview, uh, trying to claim this lady is independent. And the detail here is worth going into. So here's ISD saying that they combine sector leading expertise and research in global extremist movements. Um, they design and deliver programs that empower cities, practitioners, and civil societies around the world to quote, mitigate hate, polarization, and disinformation, and they've got a strong cities network uh, with 5,000 practitioners. These are change agents, is what they really are, and they are changing the world view of police officers, teachers, and youth workers around the world. Uh, there's a bit more. They've rolled out in 12 countries, and of course, they're after the children. So here's the counter-extremism educational resources for schools, cutting-edge digital citizenship programs. That's their spelling mistake, by the way. And uh, here, more of it here, 32,000 activists and social influencers. So this is where all the policy comes from. It goes on and on. 40 governments, 150 cities. And of course, at the end of the day, they're backed up by the BBC. But board members, quite interesting. And I thought we'd just pick out, we've got big money people the name will probably not mean anything to most people, but do go and have a look at this gentleman. He's very, very interesting. Uh, we've got Lord Adair Turner. Uh, used to be Financial Standards Authority. But when we pop over this side, well, my goodness, we've got Field Marshal, the Lord Charles Guthrie. And one you might uh, recognise, uh, Alex, we've got Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones. So what do you make of that little club? Well, I mean, the, the whole of that that column is the uh, is the bien pensant 
uh, of uh, the ship of state, shall we say, in that, that whole column, you've got the Guardian's favourite uh, historical writer, you know, why, oh, why is Britain so awful? It's because of the colonial legacy. Uh, you've got, as you mentioned there with Dame Pauline, you've got the, the chief spooks, you've got the, the top brass of the military, you've got Jonathan Powell there, uh, a, a senior staffer under Blair. Uh, it's all there, isn't it? Uh, including, you know, the, the mix of, of British uh, and continental is interesting. This particular one does seem to be dominated by the Brits and the continentals. Where are the North Americans and the Australasians in this particular one? Uh, you know, we, we've got instead Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg. You know, this is this is really sort of heel clicking uh, level of, of, of mobility. This is. Yeah, but the good news is they're all independent, Alex. I mean, for goodness' sake, don't imagine that they've got interests. These people are all independent and they simply want the best possible world for us. Yes. But maybe a UK column home office will sort that out, Mike, well, ultimately. Possibly. Ultimately, yes. Now, on Monday, we were uh, highlighting the new business plan for the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, otherwise known as the MHRA. Uh, putting patients first, a new era for agency. Uh, they call it a delivery plan rather than a business plan, but it's clearly a business plan. And if you remember, June Rain had said, uh, that the MHRA is opening up the many opportunities now that the UK has left the EU with real benefit to the brilliant UK life sciences industry. Well, guess what? The remarkable response of the UK's world-class life sciences sector to COVID-19 will be used as a blueprint to accelerate the delivery of life-changing uh, innovations to patients as part of the government's new UK life sciences vision. Uh, which has been published today. Now, the vision has got a capital V, so it is a thing. Uh, today's new UK life sciences vision, co-developed with businesses and experts in the field, sets out a mission-led approach with bold ambition for the next decade to ensure scientific excellence partnered with the dynamism of industry is replicated to assist the NHS in solving the most pressing health challenges of our generation now and in the future. So they've got seven critical healthcare missions that the government industry, NHS, academia, and medical research charities are gonna to work together on at speed to solve from cancer treatment to tackling dementia. So this is all fantastic stuff. Uh, these missions will focus on preventing, diagnosing, monitoring, and treating disease early using innovative clinical trials to develop breakthrough products and treatments quickly to help save lives and accelerating the development and adoption of new drugs, diagnostics, medical technology, and uh, digital tools. And uh, well, what are they saying? The vision with a capital V looks to emulate the successes of the UK Vaccines Task Force, harnessing private sector expertise and removing unnecessary bureaucracy so the UK's most knowledgeable industry leaders can tackle future healthcare challenges at speed and at risk uh, with the aim of changing people's lives for the better. So that's all good. Uh, and uh, well, who do you think they got to speak about this? Well, none other than Anton LaVey himself, Nadim Zahawi, who is not only the uh, UK vaccines minister, he's also the life sciences minister. Uh, and throughout this, through this pandemic, he said, uh, we've turned to the brilliance of our UK life sciences sector from developing life-saving vaccines to identifying variants through world-class genome sequencing. So we are uh, identifying the variants, keeping the narrative going, uh, through the life sciences industry. Uh, this is something that the government wants to progress as quickly as possible. And of course, as we saw with the vaccine rollout, uh, things are going to be done as quickly as possible and at risk, um, get them rolled out and make sure that we're in a position to deal with future serious events like this pandemic. Yeah, uh, yes. we just reinforce the point, Mike, that the MHRA, far from looking after the safety of the public in UK, 
is simply driving ahead with its business plan to help the pharmaceutical and vaccine industries expand their business and make more profit. And that's going to be dovetailed in with this uh, multi-trillion uh, dollar uh, genomic sequencing industry that's out there. So there's going to be a lot more coming on this. Safety doesn't figure. Uh, people are profit and they're going to get those vaccines in whatever the cost. Um, okay, let's move over to the EU. And uh, here is Patrick Breyer, who is a German Pirate Party member of the European Parliament. Uh, and he's highlighting the fact that the EU has pushed through uh, a new directive which enables mass surveillance of private communications. So what he's saying is that the European Parliament approved the e-privacy derogation, uh, allowing providers of email and messaging services to automatically search all personal messages of each citizen for presumed suspect content and report suspected cases to the police. The European Pirates Delegation and the Greens in the Greens EFA group strongly condemns this automated mass surveillance, uh, with effect, which effectively means the end of privacy in digital correspondence. And he goes on to say that uh, they have the EU, this is, or sorry, the European Commission rather, has already announced a follow-up regulation to make chat control mandatory for all email and messaging providers. So in other words, what he describes as secure end-to-end -end encryption messenger services such as WhatsApp or Signal would be forced to install a backdoor uh, to enable uh, the European government to um, effectively snoop on what people are doing. Alex, I'm just briefly wondering if you have any thoughts on that. It hasn't yet got through the Court of Justice of the EU. The European Parliament is the last of the three-cornered hat in Brussels that, that dance over such issues. and. Uh, their ratification means that the derogation, which basically means uh, something that would otherwise be illegal being legal, has is now become uh, law. So police and, and uh, intelligence agencies can, can justify that, their actions based on that. But at some point, a test case will be taken to the uh, ECJ in Luxembourg, which uh, maintains that it is the highest guardian of, of law. And I think you may have your own comments to back this up uh, with regard to the GCHQ ruling recently. But the, uh, the ECJ is, is pretty... Uh, forthright about this when it does get to judicial uh, level in the EU setting, uh, that automated mass surveillance is unlawful. Uh, uh, of course, the, the, the big thing that hasn't happened uh, is that uh, there hasn't been a marriage of the EU and the ECHR at judicial level. The EU has for a long time wanted to become a member in its own right at, uh, at EU level, not member state level, of the um, Strasbourg institution the Council of Europe, and the, the, the what's uh, made it made the, the EU resist it uh, has been the ECJ's insistence that they would be top dog for for law in Europe, the ultimate supreme court for uh, for questions of constitutional nature like this kind. So this has a lot more mileage, but of course the political headline is it's now legal. Yes, and as you say, I'm not entirely sure how that fits with the ECHR ruling on the GCHQ situation, where they said quite clearly it was illegal. Uh, but uh, let's have a look at this, this then. This is uh, more uh, accelerators, uh, more development, and it's really fantastic stuff. We're heading towards net zero, of course. Uh, everything's heading towards zero. Uh, but this is the Defence and Security Accelerator. Uh, they are pleased to launch a new market exploration called Zero Emissions Air System, uh, which uh, aims to investigate net zero operations for the next generation of light flying train aircraft. This is for the Royal Air Force. Um, and they're saying the defense currently uses a propeller-driven fossil-fueled uh, light aircraft using, uh, used across multiple military and civil airfields for pre-service entry flying training 
grading and assessment. This includes RAF University Air Squadrons, the Air Experience Flights and, and Flying Grading and Streaming for the Army and the Royal Navy. Um, all three services require the ability to develop qualified flying instructors and key skills, uh, but they need to do this net zero. So they're asking for uh, for an aircraft design, <clears throat> excuse me, that will do this. And of course, uh, they, they say, can you help uh, read the full market exploration now and submit your idea? So I, I'm going to submit my idea publicly on the news. Here it is. Uh, it's called a glider. And of course, this is the only uh, system that is available at present, which is effectively net zero uh, for flight, uh, because any other uh, aircraft design uh, simply will fall out of the sky within the uh, uh, required service uh, Parameters. duration. Yes. So let's just uh, let's just run you through these. So first of all, it has to employ a powertrain that is zero carbon emissions at the point of activity. Well, that fits with the glider. It has to be robust, dual control, side-by-side, two-seat configuration with fixed undercarriage. So the glider, unfortunately, doesn't fit that because they tend to be one behind the other these days, and the <clears throat> modern gliders tend not to have fixed undercarriages. Uh, demonstrate uh, uh, indicative performance requirements uh, and operating endurance of around 90 minutes. Well, it's unlimited endurance in a glider, so as long as the weather is suitable, and require no more than 20 minutes turnaround time. Well, it never takes 20 minutes to the glider from one end of the runway to the net to the back to the launch point, so that's no problem. It has to be capable of operating between airspeeds of 50 and 130 knots. Certainly modern gliders, no problem, and a ceiling of 10,000 feet. Well, there's really no limit with a glider if you've got oxygen on board, but 10,000 feet's no problem either. Possess a, a, an airspeed envelope that affords safe handling and low stalling speed, uh, but enables activities requiring high speeds such as uh, low-level navigation and entry into aerobatic maneuvers. Well, with a glider, uh, loops, chandelles, uh, spin, stalls, these kind of things, no problem. Rolls are a bit difficult because the, the wings are so long. Uh, be capable of flight in all classes of controlled airspace and instrument meteorological conditions. Well, properly equipped, it probably could. So I, I, that is my submission uh, for, for, that, uh, for that competition. And I'm hopefully uh, the accelerator will be paying me lots of money in due course. We just need to, need to get UK columns strapped onto those wings, Mike. Yes. I think we've got a winner. Indeed. Uh, and uh, sticking with green issues for a second, uh, then we, we've mentioned a number of times on the programme this report from the, uh, the Global Warming Policy Foundation uh, electrifying the UK and basically saying that it isn't possible to replace uh, the UK's car fleet because of the raw materials, uh, the, the fact that uh, the, the quantity of raw materials that exist in this planet aren't sufficient uh, to replace our uh, fossil fuel powered cars with uh, battery powered cars. Well, uh, here is another uh, organization. This is the International Association of Sustainable Drivetrain and Vehicle Technology Research. It's a bunch of academics who are involved in uh, developing uh, electric cars and, and also uh, uh, you know, uh, fuel cell driven cars, which are not based on fossil fuels and so on, uh, mainly academics. Uh, and they're making the point that the EU has completely fluffed its lines with respect to uh, their claims over electric cars and carbon emissions. Uh, and so what they're saying is after studying many position papers, drafts, and even reviewed scientific publications and analyzing political declarations, there are deep concerns of the signees that the fundamental derivation of CO2 emissions uh, of the, uh, is based on uh, insufficient calculus. And so they want to inform the EU that uh, they correct, uh, they, they do inform the EU of the correct cal calculation um, according to the fundamental theorem of Leibniz from the 17th century. Uh, and they make the point that uh, the real CO2 emissions 
uh, exceed those of equation one by more than a factor of two. So in other words, they're saying that the uh, EU has underestimated by a factor of two uh, the carbon emissions from converting the fleet to uh, electric. Uh, and they say that in, as a consequence, we must inform you that due to the typically unnoticed miscalculation, the CO2 saving potential of additional uh, contributors of the sector uh, is of the electricity sector is much more limited than expected by many politicians uh, and communicated by many politicians. Uh, this situation clearly is in contrast to the recommendations of quick CO2 reduction of the IPCC. But th what they don't seem to grasp is that if you take what they're saying, uh, the, the, what they're saying is correct. But if you if you take that in light of uh, the amount of uh, raw materials of cobalt, of of lithium, and so on that would be required to replace the uh, the car fleet across the UK and Europe, um, it just simply isn't possible. So that they haven't quite grasped the possibility that uh, there is a policy uh, agenda in place already that that, that those cars, will, the, the the current internal combustion engine vehicles will not be replaced on a long-term yeah. basis and we simply will not be traveling uh, the way we used to. To the extent we are. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, if you wondered why you can't get any sense out of politicians, uh, Metro here focused in on a, an interview from BBC Breakfast. So the headline, frustrated Dan Walker laughs at minister's answer over mask wearing as viewers slam embarrassing BBC Breakfast interview. Can't bring you the sound on this one, but we can at least bring the animation up of what's going on on screen here. Uh, but essentially, Dan Walker asks the Minister for Care, Helen um, Waitley, um, spelt wrong there because it's uh, got two, it's only got one E. I just thought I'd point that out. But um, he asks her what her personal opinion is, and she can't give a personal opinion. He politely asks her again and again and again until he starts to smile himself. And this lady simply cannot give her personal opinion about mask wearing. And she says that she's got to wait until the social distancing review comes out. And then she will make her opinion based on what the social distancing review has to say. So let's have a look at what this really means for us, the public. Um, she says, you ask me what I think, but I will think what the social distancing review tells me to think. And I will repeat that. And this is the document I think she was talking about, which is now out. So this is Social Distancing Review Report, July uh, 2021. Uh, there's the contents, if you're interesting. It's not really worth reading because there's nothing of substance in it. But let's go back to the subject. You asked me what I think, but I'm a Tory party member and we're too scared of the whips to express um, personal opinions. You asked me what I think, but... I'm a Tory party member. We're not allowed to think for ourselves. The party thinks for us. And you ask me what I think, but as a Tory party member, we've been reframed and behaviourally controlled to toe the line. And you ask me what I think, but I've moved beyond the individual to serve the political consensus view. I am now one with the party. So we've reached the well, what would you call her, Alex? You're much better at the English language than I am. I mean, is she is she a drone, or is this the um, original hive mind? I would say she's um, a strand of the Borg. She's uh, achieved the singularity moment in the Conservative Central Headquarters. Good. Good. So, if you can't get a response from your politician, it's because they've been reframed, and we're serious about this. They can't think for themselves. They can only repeat the party mantra. 
and therefore they need to be educated by the general public and that means you've got to be on their doorstep and in their electronic inbox uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, and Alex, we're just going to end on this one from the Northwich Guardian. Uh, Northwich mums get together to hold their own sports day. So reporting from beautiful mid-Cheshire, Scott Murphy is doing the job of a local journalist, for which applause, and he's reporting what is actually happening in the area rather than what people are supposed to think and fear in the area. So he's reporting that uh, a group of uh, mums in this uh, town, Northwich, uh, not far south of Manchester, uh, have organised their own sports day uh, after several of them, this is the key thing, spoke to the head teacher of the primary school of their children repeatedly saying that they were not pleased with, well, we've been told the guidance says no, it's not safe for you to watch your children. These mothers politely and firmly said to the head teacher several times, uh, that is not good enough. And when they got nothing more than guidance says no, they decided to organise their own sports day instead. What a shocking thought in 21st century Britain that you can actually do things yourself. And here is one of the eight photographs accompanying the article showing that this group of small children in Northwich uh, managed actually to have their own sports day with no health and safety guidance and no school involved, just and, them and their parents. And Alex, look at the expression on the faces of those children. They are happy, they're laughing, they're out there getting fresh air and exercise and, of course, all great stuff for boosting those developing immune systems. So those mums have done extremely well, I think. All goes to show that you don't need the state for much, unless, of course, you are dependent and broken. Uh, oh, I think I've just revealed the policy. <laughs> OK, we'll leave it there. A um, lot of serious stuff from UK Column today. Uh, please go and research the, the subjects that we've covered today. We've uh, done our best to pull out the pertinent points, but if you can get in there and find more detail and greater understanding, then feedback to us. We'd like to hear from you. And uh, just one comment, there's a couple of people who've said we're using the term vaccination, and there's lots of reasons that we shouldn't be talking about vaccination. The reason that we use the term vaccination is because people out there in the wider public who are just starting to understand that something is wrong, they talk in terms of vaccination, so we're using their language. We're not talking to the people who are well awake and may say there's something different, but this will evolve further as, as more information comes out on the use of these injected chemicals. Uh, right, so uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, on the live stream for some extra and otherwise uh, 1pm as usual on Friday. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.